Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, along the American shoreline, in many parts of America, there are artificial reef projects that are being constructed for habitat enhancement. In fact, Tyler, as you recall, we had Gary Glick That's on right. as a guest. One of our uh, big-time fan, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod and the director of the RGV Reef, which is the Rio Grande Valley Reef, 1,600 acres off of South Texas. That's right. Big, big old thing. Big Low old relief. Thing. And we're going to talk today to another leader of a mitigation reef project. Jenny McGee is, the, is a restoration ecologist and project manager for Southern California Edison Power Company down in L.A. area. Uh, San Onofre. San Onofre. Uh, Jenny, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, this is, uh, Peter, as you said, just a really interesting uh, deep dive, if you will, into a, uh, a project that is intended to mitigate the impacts of uh, kelp loss due to the San Onofre Nuclear Power Generating Station. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting and complex problem that Jenny's working on. So, but, so we're really stoked to get into this. And uh, there's, there's all sorts of interesting stuff to, to discuss. But before we do, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, we always want to thank at the top of our show, currently the leading sponsor for Coastal News today in the American Shoreline Podcast Network. The American Shore and Beach Preservation Association is a longtime sponsor, and we will be at the national conference, and you should be too. The national, no doubt about it. That we'll be there podcasting. Tyler and I are the exclusive podcast host for the conference, uh, October twenty second through the twenty fifth. Coming up in yeah, a couple of weeks in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You can register for that conference still do it we'd love to see you there at you go to asbpa.org and uh, join us in myrtle beach for the asbpa national conference coming up october 22nd okay and a month later you got to come out to savannah georgia and join us for the 20th anniversary atlantic intracoastal waterway association annual meeting november 21 through 22 uh, this is going to be an amazing meeting in savannah georgia where the AIWA, uh, yeah. which is the organization that that really uh, advocates for the, the upkeep and, and maintenance of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway, is having its annual meeting, the 20th one. Yeah. And, and we it, will be there also podcasting, bringing the the goings on, the, the live uh, updates of the event to our national audience. But that is no excuse not to get there yourself. Savannah is a beautiful town. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. I understand that this is uh, just a great time. It's a great experience. And uh, for all of you contractors and vendors out there, you know there's a ton of work being done uh, to make the IAWW more resilient going into the future. Yeah. Its economic importance is only increasing. Yeah. Its recreational importance is only increasing. So this is a just a great opportunity for all you vendors out there. Absolutely, Todd. I think if uh, do join us in Savannah. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to Brad Pickle's interview. He's the executive director of the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association and talks about this conference. What I love about it, one of the most historic waterways in America, a critical backbone of the East Coast economy. Uh, we don't know a lot about this waterway. Most Americans don't. And uh, this conference will be a great place for us to 
bring that to light. Absolutely. Hope to see you in Savannah. Well, uh, Jenny, we are so glad to have you on the American Shoreline podcast and to talk about the important work you are doing for SoCal Edison. Uh, why don't you tell us, though, before we dive into that project, how about a little background? Uh, how did you come to the job? Where, where, What's your professional background? And uh, to, uh, Give us a little background. A here. little introduction. Okay. Well, thanks, you guys, so much for having me on. Um, this is really fun. Um, so I went to uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, go banana slugs. Um, I graduated in 2001, and at Santa Cruz I studied um, environmental policy. And I also studied botany and ecology, really just because I love plants and I love ecosystems. Um, so I went from college, I went, in, I went into um, government work in the Lake Tahoe Basin area where I worked on stormwater systems and the Keep Tahoe Blue initiative up there. Um, so I worked for a couple of different state and federal organizations up there for a few years. And then I came back to my hometown um, in Dana Point, California, down in Orange County, and I started working um, as a consultant. And I did um, many years, about 10 years of um, biological consulting work, doing lots of different botanical surveys and also um, specializing in habitat restoration. So I did um, some large coastal restoration projects, working on uh, wetland restoration and also coastal bluff scrub and those types of habitats. Um, and then I got recruited um, to work on a transmission line project with Southern California Edison. Um, and it's 173 miles of transmission line that connects to wind power. Um, so I've been on that project. I actually still manage the habitat restoration on that project. And I've been on that job since 2010. Um, so in that work, um, I started managing contractors and managing um, large sums of money and lots of different complexities involving different types of habitats and different types of sourcing, plant material, and that type of thing. Um, and then I started getting involved in the mitigation program we have at the San Nofri Nuclear Generation Station. Um, so I can get into a little bit about why we call it a program, um, but essentially there's a couple of different projects that are a component of the whole mitigation package um, for the nuclear power plant down there. Um, one of them is a wetland, and we open the wetland, we, we kind of move um, we go in with some heavy construction and we move around a bunch of sand every couple of years to keep the wetland functioning. And so huh. that I kind of got in some heavy construction. Um, turns out I have a knack for heavy construction. I sort of like it. It's kind of a sexy project. And yeah. So then, um, yeah. So then, then the reef came along and it, it was a good fit. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a uh, marine biologist in a, a traditional sense. Um, I'm classically trained in, you know, terrestrial habitats. Um, but, you know, the nuts and bolts of this one was a really good fit for my experience. And I love this job because I'm so used to putting plants in the ground and trying to keep them alive is kind of tricky. With this job, I just have to put rocks under the in the ocean and the plants come on their own. So uh, it's one of the things I like about this job. Well, you have uh, had an amazing career so far, and it sounds like uh, you're you're got your hands full here with Southern California Edison doing this mitigation work. And you know, I just pausing really quickly. You know, 
uh, pretty much, I think, regardless of where where you are on the American shoreline, Peter, uh, mitigation work is is one of the dominant. Uh, uh, kind of root funding, you know, root causes for a lot of the restoration and um, conservation work that happens. Uh, so this, you know, for our audience that might not be familiar with that, it might be a little odd to hear, oh, Southern California Edison's doing all of this work, you know, is that, is there, is it some sort of dirty thing? But actually, no, it's a, it's a good thing. It means that our, uh, regulatory bodies are attempting to account for, the damages to ecosystems and environments that take place just by virtue of us living modern lives. And that that includes when you flip the switch, the power comes on. Absolutely right. I think, um, you know, we use the shorelines a lot. We demand a lot of these resources. We occupy and modify these spaces. And mitigation is, of course, the way we try to balance that equation. Uh, Jenny, why don't you give us a little bit of background about the San Onofre Nuclear Power Station uh, down there in Southern California, and it, it's the operation of this plant that triggered the mitigation requirement. Can you educate our listeners a little bit about that history? Sure. So um, we call it SONGS. It's the San Onofre, uh, San Onofre Nuclear Generation Station. So I'll refer to it as SONGS just because it's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, but it's located in um, just south of the city of San Clemente. Um, which is uh, just on the border of Orange and San Diego counties. Um, so in 1974, the Coastal Commission um, permitted this the Songs power plant. Um, and in that, they, they put forward a number of requirements. One of them was that we were in... We were to study the, uh, well, so let me back up. The power plant uses, instead of building giant cooling towers, which were going to cost billions of dollars at that time and uh, really going to be a huge eyesore, uh, we opted to use ocean water to cool the plant. So as part of the design of the plant, we have um, we have a, an intake and a discharge offshore. And... Um, so in 1974, in the permit, um, the Coastal Commission said, well, we need to study the impacts of that because we didn't really know. So we studied the impacts um, for a number of years. And then in 1989, the, co the, the studies resulted in three, uh, essentially three categories of impacts. One, that adult fish were being pulled in and impacted by the intakes. Two, um, we had an impact to fish eggs and larvae, also impact, impacted by the intake. And then the release of the water um, created turbid water impacts because it was basically a, a redistribution of um, deeper water to surface or surface to deeper water um, that kind of created some turbid conditions offshore. And that is what resulted in... Um, a turbid plume that blocked sunlight from the sand over kelp bed, affecting kelp recruitment and growth on huh. the kelp bed offshore. That's interesting. You know, and I think yeah. what I'd like to say to folks, if you're listening to the podcast and you have a chance, uh, go on Google Earth, Google Earth Pro, of course, I'm a big fan of that one, um, and put in the San Onofre nuclear uh, power plant project, and you can see it. It's located right on the coastline between Interstate 5 and the Pacific Ocean. And I didn't know this, but when you said it, I immediately understood the picture. Um, 
in in the aerial photograph you can see the containment domes for the nuclear power generation units and there were three units at this plant uh, but there is no cooling tower that classic nuclear uh cooling tower that sort of tapers in and gets wider at the top and has the steam plume coming out the top there are none and uh that's and, and and now i understand why the design of this plant used the thermal capacity of the ocean to cool the plant and to cool the water the plant cooling water we're not talking about the the water here used to generate steam power right we're talking about the cooling system basically the radiator of the nuclear power plant am i understanding that right yeah 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 you explained it really well so um, the impact, so the, the plant was uh, commissioned initially in 1968, I think you said started working in 72, something like that, uh, and operated until 2013, I understand, uh, for a period of 32 years. And, it, and the, the, I, I like that your description of the impact, that the plant is sucking in a, do you know how much water was pulled into the intake on an hourly basis, or how was that measured? I don't. Um, you know, that would have to be coming from some of our nuclear yeah. folks. I'm not too close <laughs> to the details of that. That's okay. I wouldn't know. I know I can tell you that we're at 2% now. So in decommissioning, um, we're, we're still intaking, but it's like less than 2% of what it was. So okay. that was what we used during the permitting um, to really put a what we call the oper to define the operating life, which um, oh. we can get to the in the permitting piece why that was really important to yeah, us. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And then and 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 so the the bringing the water into the plant to cool it, you're bringing in fish potentially, but fish larvae, fish eggs, and it's the discharge turbidity issue. Now, I thought it was a temperature issue that the water was too warm, but the impact you're saying from the discharge. And not from right. the intake was primarily a question of, of water clarity and therefore impact on kelp? Right. But it wasn't a discharge. So when we say turbidity, we think of like sediment suspended in the water. Mm -hmm. um, there was no release of any sediment. Right. But it's really a, distribu a redistribution of turbid water because, you know, in our ocean systems, we've got a lot of water inshore that's getting, um, you know, the wave action is creating this constant turbid um, conditions. And offshore, it's, it, you know, there's less of the wave action, so the water is more clear. Right. So it's basically a redistribution of that turbid water and floating over on the current floating over the kelp bed just basically just, shot, uh, sh just shaded it. So right. So it didn't have the sunlight to grow. Right. And so... As part of our mitigation, um, we did a couple of different things. We made some improvements to our in-plant fish return system. So we, you know, made some adjustments to limit how many fish were being trapped and return them. Um, and then we also created 150 acres of tidal wetland down in San Diego, which is that sand, um, the sand replenishment, you know, opening the inlet that I was telling you about earlier. Right. Uh, and then we, we built 150 acres of kelp reef. And cool. so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can. Well, you know, let's, know. I, I want to, let's talk about kelp and the importance of kelp to um, the, the, the marine ecosystem there, because, you know, uh, on, this is, this is kind of a unique thing in that uh, I think oftentimes when you think of a reef system, uh, obviously, again, Peter mentioned we've had Gary Glick on. That's a low-relief reef system. So uh, this is also a low-relief reef system where, you right. know, we're, this, we're not building um, huge structures here 
where that you might see in a dive magazine or something. The idea is that we're going to build some substrate on the bottom of the ocean that kelp can attach to. And the importance of that, Jenny, I believe, and I'll just state it and you can uh, color this in as, as necessary, but is that the uh, kelp is like, it basically creates a forest in the, in the water. It, be, it becomes the habitat for all, all manner of species. And, and why, don't, why don't I just ask you, tell us about, about uh, you know, the, the vitality of, of kelp ecosystems there. Sure. Well, not being a marine biologist, I simplify it. Um, I, I really like kind of describing it as a rainforest under the water. I mean, it grows so fast. Um, it's a foundational species um, because the kelp forest provides food and structure for a wide diversity of other species. So um, the primary goal of designing the Wheeler North Reef was to make it suitable for the establishment, growth, and persistence of giant kelp because we know that, um, you know, like a lot of other forest systems, it's those structures, those foundational species that really um, are, are, are the ones that support, you know, the, the diversity of other wildlife, um, plants and animals. And we also know from our ongoing coverage of the California coast that marine biologists are always studying out in California and on the on the West Coast in particular. They're always very interested in the health of the kelp forest. When we were talking yes. with the Farallons, uh, a marine, National Marine Sanctuary director, I'm blanking on her name, forgive me. Um, but she was, this was a concern for her several, at least one of the films we saw at the International Ocean Film Festival last year, Peter, involved this, uh, yeah. the, the Purple Urchin uh, film. I believe we had that filmmaker on, a student filmmaker. Yep. Um, we have been, and I, I can tell you as a, as a person growing up in Southern California, I remember that uh, to, to always look out, you know, when you're driving along the Pacific Coast Highway or whatever, you'd look out and you could see, I mean, you're right, Jenny, about how fast this stuff grows. I mean, it, it can appear and kind of disappear. There are fluctuations in it. Um, so it is, it is, it's totally a fundamental thing and it's, it's very important. Yes, absolutely. It's a foundational species. And one of the interesting things about kelp, as you're mentioning, it's, um, it's cyclical. And the ocean currents and the storms will come in and they'll break off the kelp from the whole fast, which are, are on the structures of the ocean, the bottom, you know, rock. Um, they'll break the whole fast off and then the kelp will kind of float off into the ocean and it'll become then a secondary benefit to um, animals out in the open water where there isn't structure, there is some kind of shelter and there's some um, you know, some food for animals as they're swimming through the open water. So it, it, it benefits um, in, a different, in many different ways um, through different cycles. And it can grow up to two feet a day. So it is, it is a pretty amazing um, foundational species for this really important habitat. Great. And where we're putting the reef, it's all sand. It's all sandy substrate. So there's nothing there right now. So it, it is definitely a net benefit. Well, let's talk about uh, the value of the kelp. Obviously, I think folks on the West Coast know it. And I think the description you provided, great foundational structure species for habitat. Uh, and so when you're mitigating or creating uh, kelp forest, as you describe it, I think that's a great term. Let's just let our readers know. So the initial 
uh, obligation was 150 acres of kelp forest to be generated in phase one. I think you guys are either in phase two or just finished phase two recently to add a, what, additional 200 acres of kelp forest, trying to reach a total of about 374 acres of kelp forest. Is that, did I get my facts right? (laughs) You're close. Okay. <laughs> help, help us out. How we've close? Built, <laughs> no, um, we've built, so we have uh, three phases. Okay. The first phase was the experimental phase. So the first thing we did in, in 1998 was we built a bunch of different modules that were kind of experimental. Let's try different types of materials and study them and see how they perform. We studied them for five years, and we learned that quarry rock was really the best material, and that's where all the designs were built off of was the experimental reef. Okay. So we called that phase one, and that okay. was like 24 acres. Gotcha. And then in 2008, we did the build-out reef, which was the mitigation reef, and that was phase two. In uh, phase two was 150 acres. Gotcha. So coming into uh, 2019, we had 176 acres in the water already. And right. uh, so we have a number of requirements that we have to meet to be in compliance with and fulfill our mitigation responsibilities um, that were set forth by the Coastal Commission back when the permit was amended in 1989. Okay. And so... Um, the reef has to meet a number of different criteria. The, the way they measure it, they they have absolute and relative. So the relative, the scientists compare it to other reefs in the area. Uh, and then the absolute, they're looking just at the um, values that Wheeler is providing and comparing that against the um, required uh, mitigation standards okay. in the permit. So one of those is 150 acres of kelp that has to support 150 acres of kelp and it has to meet, um, it has to produce 28 tons of fish per year. Okay. And we were not meeting the fish requirement and we had not met the fish requirement a single year that the, since we built the reef in 2008. So it was performing well. It was acting just like the um, relative relative data showed us that it was um, responding very much like the other two naturally recurring reefs offshore. So we compare it to two other reefs called the San Mateo and the Barn. And it was right in the middle there. Um, And all the trend data, it's it's the fluctuation up and down uh, was right where the other two natural reefs were. So we know that it was trending consistently with the natural systems. But it just wasn't large enough to meet the 28 ton of fish. And there were a couple of years where we dipped below the uh, kelp area requirement as well. So that was when in 2016, the Coastal Commission gave us a letter and said, you need to build more. That is where we get to um, phase three, where we said, okay, we're going to build an additional 200 acres. And this is um, the remediation reef. So this is our mitigation reef wasn't large enough. Here's the remediation to that mitigation and we're going to expand it. So yes, now we have, when we're done with construction of this one, we will have 376 acres wow. out there. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and for folks around the country here, and I think you mentioned it, uh, that the substrate in this area is sandy. There is natural kelp to the north and to the south of this area. And there was obviously kelp off the Santa Onofre uh, power plant site. 
but essentially what I've read, and, and again, fill in the details, there's about 170,000 tons of quarried rock that is being collected from a couple of sources, uh, Catalina Island, I think one source in Mexico, put on a barge, brought out to a site, and this particular uh, site is called the Wheeler North Mitigation Reef Site, and I know Todd and I both want to know more Just, about we're Wheeler gonna, we're North. Gotta <laughs> we got to pause. We got to pause right now and <laughs> pour one out for. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, before we do that, and we're going to jump in yeah, because yeah, we will. But 170,000 tons total rock is going to be added to create a surface on the bottom that can can attach to with the the holdfast is called, and about 790 tons per acre. Is that did I did I get that right? Yeah, pretty close. Um, so those are the spots that we covered in our permits. We're um, we're looking at putting 150,000 tons, so a little bit less. And the tonnage per acre varies. Um, what we learned during construction this year with the three different sources, um, the three different quarries that you mentioned, two at Catalina and one at um, Mexico, there's three different uh, geological composite rocks that are going into the project. And each one of those rock sources has a different density, meaning the tonnage per acre is going to vary depending on what barge we have that day. Uh-huh. And do, are, do do all of these quarries produce similar results in terms of you know kelp attachment? Yes. Mm-hmm. So the yeah, there's specific um, there's specifications to the type of rock, the size, the um, specific gravity. We have it all tested, um, and our ocean engineer on the project um, reviews all of that and, and basically gives his blessing before the rock can be used. Well, it's, it's an incredible project, and I encourage our listeners to just Google it up. I mean, uh, when you said you're a, you're a heavy equipment, heavy, you know, hev- heavy machinery type of gal, uh, that's no joke here. Uh, these are massive barges. Uh, in fact, in your uh, little press packet that you sent over, the, the crew comp, in fact, why don't, why don't I have you talk, walk us through? I mean, it's not just a barge out there with a you know, dropping rock. There's a full-on caterpillar. There's actually two caterpillars out there. You have a backup out there. Tell us about the equipment that's used to do this. Oh, yeah. This is what makes it so fun. Um, so we have, there, first of all, there's not very many companies that do this. So a highly specialized Connolly Pacific company, uh, marine construction contractors out of Long Beach, have been secured by the job for the job. Um, and they have one of the – it's actually an old Navy ship that has a crane on it. It's 200 uh, – I think it's 270 feet long. And it's a, it's a really large ship. Um, and that's – we call it the Derrick Barge Long Beach. And the Derrick Barge Long Beach is uh, towed into position uh, by a tugboat. And then it's secured by six different anchors. And the anchor system is key to this job because the anchors are what – is used to um, move the barge along <clears throat> into position so that when the rock is pushed off the edge of the rock barge, it's placed exactly where we want it to go. So there's all kinds of um, spatial technology on the ship as well as on the tugboats for the placement of the anchors um, that really give uh, the precision to this job that you need in order to get it exactly right. So there's a rock barge, which is just a floating flat deck barge. 
and those are towed um, over from the quarries by a tugboat. And the tugboat then brings the rock barge and positions it parallel, bow to bow, against the derrick barge. And then they um, they link them together with chains. The crane on the rock barge is, a I think, a 300-ton capacity crane, lifts the um, caterpillar off of the derrick barge and lowers it onto the rock barge. And then there's an operator in the caterpillar who then... Um, place the rock and they kind of feather it along they don't just push it off you know they kind of it's amazing to watch there's a lot of finesse into the placement but yeah they, they kind of lay it on the edge and then they slowly push it off and, and sort of feather it in a line wow. so you get like windrows kind of and so when you say caterpillar we're talking about a a bulldozer that is yes. on board the vessel that is used to push the these large, these are not small rocks, yeah. but with about the size of what? one to three feet in diameter. One to three feet yeah. in diameter. Is it limestone or what kind of stone is it? Well, we have um, granite coming out of Mexico, and there's a, a metavolcanic rock and a, a conglomerate rock coming out of okay. Um, Catalina. Okay. So a couple different kinds. It's placed down. I love the, this, this anchor system that you described where the barge is anchored in six different points. And in order for the barge to be moved forward, they're going to tighten the anchor lines on one side and release them on the other and, and control the position of this platform. It is a very precise operation. And uh, does the permit you have specify, I have two questions, does it specify the area that you need to operate within? And what is the typical water depth of the area where you're creating the Wheeler North Reef? So the typical water depth is between 38 and 49 feet. So it's it's pretty deep water, and the rocks are only one to three feet in diameter. So you still have plenty of navigation space over the reef. And that's important because this is a heavy shipping. Uh, it's a shipping channel, and then there's lots of recreational boating off of this shoreline. So um, that's really important. In terms of the area, um, we are placing the reef in – well, the reef is located within – waters that are jurisdictional for California State Lands Commission. Okay. And the State Lands Commission was actually the lead agency for this project. Um, even though it was mandated by the Coastal Commission because of the jurisdiction, then um, State Lands became the lead agency. And we do pay, we do have a lease agreement with State Lands. And when we went to build the expansion reef, we needed to expand the lease. So we did have to amend it and expand the area and we do pay an annual fee for that lease right and so the 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 total here you said i think it was 376 acres when the reef complex the wheeler north reef complex is complete and in terms of the mitigation here it sounds like in meeting the standards you said there's this absolute standard and there's a relative standard the relative standard being in comparison to nearby kelp forest is this as healthy or doing does it look and function and do things like the adjacent ones and this absolute standard of 28 tons of fish per year now let's 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 help our audience understand that permit requirement can you walk down the path a little bit how did they come up with 28 acres what does it mean per year 28 tons right? 28 tons i'm sorry 28 tons per year and how does that affect how is this measured walk us through how uh, this fish mitigation number yes so the 28 tons per year is 
related to, remember earlier we were talking about they, they conducted these studies uh, where they were evaluating the impacts. And so the impacts, um, I believe, were about 20 acres or 20, sorry, 20 tons of fish per year. And so the 28 tons is commiserate to that. It's supposed to be um, a net benefit and, right. you know, relational to the so impact. Not a so one, not, not a one-to-one mitigation ratio, but maybe a, whatever it is, 1.2 to 1 or slightly higher. Can Correct. I ask you, let me ask you a question. I don't mean to interrupt because I want to go back to how the permit works. But when we're talking about the impact, the loss of 28 tons of fish per year as a result of the operation of the uh intake outtake system for cooling the plant um i'm guessing either it's killing the fish directly but i don't kind of don't think that's what they're counting really it's the it's the reproductive loss from the intake or what do they what were they counting when they measured 20 tons of fish loss annually as a result of the plant's operation so it's a combination of yes the reproductive so there was and we're going back to like kind of like the year I was born. (laughs) (laughs) A little ways back. A little ways back. But um, no, so they, they did kind of, what they did was they basically looked at the direct and the direct impacts, um, which then, you know, eventually we, we did study and made improvements to, but also, yes, there's an extrapolation of, you know, the reproductive loss. Okay. So we come up with this 28 tons number and how do they know, and I, I, you know, as the people who have to execute the project and meet this standard, so, so Cal Edison's project, and as the project manager, the company's obviously putting a lot of work into getting this right. Uh, how do you know if you've produced 28 tons of fish per year? What do they do to measure that? Do they, do they go out and net a bunch of stuff and weigh it and put it back in the water? What, how is it done? Well, so the Coastal Commission, one of the requirements of the original songs permit was that there would be an independent scientific panel and contract scientists um, that work out of UC Santa Barbara. And the scientific advisory panel um, is a, a group of scientists from the different University of California's within within the state. So there, there's representatives from um, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, I think San Diego. Um, most of them are from Santa Barbara, but they um, they they are the ones behind all of the data. Um, the way that the data is collected is actually graduate students and university students um, who dive. Um, they dive the reef each year and they lay transects and then, then they measure the, the fish within these transects. So specifically for the fish, they look at the density of bottom dwelling fish. Um, they evaluate the individual links of the fish and the relationships between the fish length and the fish mass. So then they take the length of this fish and they evaluate um, the life stage of the fish and then they um, calculate by multiplying the number of fish in each life stage by the average weight of that life stage and then summing over all the life stages. And so that's how they that's how they get the, the, the actual density. See, now all you biology students out there, and especially you marine biologists, this is what we're talking about and what you get into when you study to be a scientist and you get involved in the application of science into the real world and in permitting situations like this. Uh, so the scientific advisory panel, obviously a third-party trusted group of people who are going to monitor, measure, and decide whether the reef is performing as it should. Uh, 
Was Wheeler North a member of that panel? He was not. So uh, Wheeler North was a, uh, a Cal Forest ecologist, um, and he was he was more involved at the very early A legend. <laughs> yes. He, he was, was a legend. He was a legend. <laughs> I don't mean to downplay it. No, no, no. Uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> By all means. Yes, he was a legend, and he, he was really involved in the early years of studying the impacts of song. And so... That, were, that was where his uh, nexus with the project really uh, really happened was actually during, during the power plant where we're studying the, the impacts of the power plant. Well, let's just take a quick moment. Uh, the namesake of, of the uh, reef here, uh, Wheeler J. North, uh, go, go to look at his Wikipedia. I mean, this guy has got a, a Wikipedia profile picture of just the quintessential straight out of central casting. Uh, marine biologist uh, and prolific writer and iconic uh, marine biology scientist in Southern California, both at Scripps uh, and at Caltech uh, in Pasadena there. And uh, this this guy, uh, I have to say, went to high school in Ojai, my, my fair hometown. He went to <laughs> Thatcher in Ojai. And, um, well, of course, uh, he, he passed away in 2002. You know, the, he, I believe this, and I'm going to have to do some additional research, and I'll get back to uh, all y'all listeners eventually on this. But um, there was a, a, a kind of a cadre of uh, marine biologists and coastal scientists. We've talked about Orville Magoon before on the show and how cool he was up in Santa Barbara making wine and studying beaches. But... Um, I, I get the idea that uh, North was uh, kind of in that class of, of uh, kind of pioneering coastal scientists. So cool, cool to have his name be on this reef, Jenny. Definitely. And if you go, if you ever have a chance, if any of your listeners are down in San Clemente and decide to take a stroll to the end of the pier, there's a plaque at the end of the San Clemente Pier that, that where we did dedicate the reef. And it's the plaque is located where you can look off of the pier and you can actually see some of the kelp surface at the surface of the water. So it's, it's pretty cool. This show is also brought to you by the DHI Group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, a reservoir, an ocean, a coastline, or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on coastalnewstoday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email. But go to dhigroup.com to learn more. You know, one of the things that's common in Florida, when I worked in uh, permitting uh, beach restoration projects, we would have to create mitigation reefs because we would be burying near shore ephemeral hard bottom uh, features with a beach restoration project in very similar to what you're doing, large quarried stone put into the ocean and heavy machinery, heavy machinery, trying to create. A reef, and it's a very complicated calculation. What is the impact of the operation of the plant, or what is the impact of a beach restoration project? How do you really decide how much biology, biological productivity to replace? 
and I bring that up because is my understanding is that Dr. Uh, Wheeler North had a viewpoint, had, he was an expert in the study of the impact of warm water discharges on kelp beds. He was, he, I think, he, I believe his uh, research career included this particular power plant as an investigative site. Um, and it's, I also think I've, I, what I've heard is that he was not 100% sure about the mitigation necessity in this case. Can you, obviously it's been decided and the California Coastal Commission has issued the permit and you guys are going forward. So we're not trying to reopen this, but can you, do you know much about his particular take uh, as this mitigation project was being defined? Well, I know that, um... Dr. North felt that, you know, ocean systems are highly cyclical. You know, uh, we know that reef, reef supports kelp systems that are highly dynamic. Ocean systems are highly dynamic. And the presence of kelp comes and goes. And it's been argued um, that, you know, North argued that the year that they were doing a lot of the studies, there was a wide die-off of kelp and that it wasn't necessarily or couldn't be directly tied to the power plant, but it's intrinsically because there were other factors that contributed. Um, in fact, just as early as our permitting process for the expansion, some of the fishermen who knew North, um, because of, you know, this is a, a, a small community, um, some of the fishermen who, local fishermen who knew him and were involved in the early stages as well, showed up to the hearings and recirculated his papers where he said, you know, that there was no, that, that the studies that were done back in the 70s, um, that the mitigation was based off of really over the mitigation over exaggerated the impact essentially yeah. and, and that you know he felt that it would recover it would grow back um you know well i do so. think you know and it's a common discussion in and i think one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is the complexity of these resource management decisions uh and you have worked in in mitigation and resource planning from a, as a biologist and as a consulting biologist for a long time uh and it, they're not easy, and and the policy questions here are can can be a little bit complicated, um, and it's almost you know the standard never is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not talking about convicting someone of uh, you know robbery or murder. We're talking <laughs> about you know we're making economic use of our shorelines. We are doing things that change the environment. I give SoCal Edison. Uh, a credit for taking the initiative, working with the state, getting this right, and making the investment, uh, even though there's always scientific doubt at some level. How much money do you, can you tell us how much, what is the overall investment that the company is making in its mitigation program, both its mitigation reef and you mentioned the, the marshes as well? Is there a total number out there? I don't have the number for the marshes, but I can tell you um, the total investment circles about $50 million. Wow. Now, that's a big number. That's a big investment. And I just want to say, you know, here we are, we're talking about, you know, a lot of this stuff. When you Google this reef, what you find is that uh, it's listed immediately with, like, the Southern California Diving Association. I mean, there are recreational benefits to this reef apparently the lobster uh 
lobsters love it and uh, people go out there and and fish in the i suppose i suppose they spear fish in the kelp forests and you know it's become a recreational site and you know i'm not sure to to what degree uh people envisioned this being a an a, a, an attraction uh, when it was designed, it's a low relief reef. It's not your typical thing, but, um, you know, it's definitely like it, the top, top five, uh, Google searches are, uh, kind of for recreational use, which is an interesting, wow. an interesting, yeah. you know, benefit, I would say. How is the, Jenny, how is the reef used? What does, uh, what is, what do you guys know about that? Well, in this part of Orange County, you've got Dana Point Harbor, which houses commercial and recreational fish, fishing. And there is a, a very big recreational like fishing industry that comes out of Dana Point. It's a small town, but um, there's a whole fishing operation. And people, you know, it's like you don't have to go down to Mexico to go catch your tuna. Uh, you hop on a boat, take a day trip out, um, and they'll take you right to the fish. And so the commercial fisheries, they they fish this on a regular basis, daily. And then, you know, a lot of the um, local fishing, um, the local mariners, you know, they come out and they fish it recreationally um, quite heavily as well. And then the diving, so it's interesting to hear that it shows up in, in, for diving. I've been told I don't dive. I've been told that it's it's really murky conditions. So all of our divers, our student divers, they come up and they have some really good pictures, but a lot of times they haven't been, you know, the visibility is pretty low. But we do know the lobster fishing, in fact, our construction season just ended October 1st because the lobster uh, fishing begins, the commercial lobster fishing season begins. And just as we were demobilizing, I mean, there were lobster traps everywhere. So. <laughs> You know, it's used for, um, you know, and there's also a Dana Point's known for its whale watching. And when the whale watching, uh, the whales come by um, the outside of the reef as well. And so it is um, a, a big recreational benefit. It's, uh, you know, going back to what we're saying about biodiversity, it just is um, the foundation of a lot of biodiversity and with uh, a coastal community that is heavy with recreation centered around ro- ocean activities, of course, you know, greater resources, um, biological resources are going to drive up that recreational use as well. Yeah, definitely. No. And and I should say on, on the diving site, it says the visibility is 20 to 30 feet. Maybe that's a best case scenario, but uh, it's definitely, you know, it's listed as a, as a good dive spot. You know, one of the interesting things that we were talking about before the show, Jenny, that I want to circle back to in the permitting process is uh, the location of the reef and, and some negotiation that uh, that you and I believe the state was having with a tribal organization. Can you tell us about that negotiation? Yes, and this was a learning experience for all of us involved. Um, as a result of Assembly Bill 52 that was passed, I, I, I'm not sure what year, I wouldn't say, it was, it's recently passed. Um, so the consultation process has changed under CEQA. And as part of the consultation process, the lead agency reaches out to uh, tribes and says, hey, we have this project within your tribal area. Um, 
and you know the tribes then can respond and say speak up what we have resources we want to be part of the consultation process or or choose not to respond um jenny Uh, very quickly let me interject for the uh can you tell our listeners around the country who are not californians what sequa is my apologies. Yes, of course. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we we do have a national audience, and I know you I, do. I, I know a, I know what it is, but I bet a lot of people who <laughs> don't. don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, is the California Environmental Quality Act. It um, actually predated the National Environmental Policy Act and was. Um, the piece of legislation that the NEPA system, the federal system, was designed after. So what it does is it requires that all of these different categories um, of resource areas, biological, cultural, um, noise, air quality, have to be evaluated um, during the licensing process. And under CEQA, if any of these areas are concluded to have the project in any of these areas concluded to have significant impacts, uh, then there has to be some type of mitigation or offset to those impacts before the project can go forward. Thank so you. very similar to NEPA, yes. Uh, so under the AB 52, um, there's this tribal consultation, and I do want to preface, I'm not in any regards uh, um, a cultural resource specialist. However, we do have in-house um, some very talented folks who um, our cultural resources um, specialist that that part, I partnered with on this process. Um, but it, essentially, the Ahakman Nation, um, which is a band of the Huaninu Indians, um, uh, spoke up and they said, you know, we had a village out in this area 12,000 years ago. And we believe they could, there could be tribal cultural resources. <clears throat> and so at that time, um, we now submerged. Time. Yes, now submerged. And so we shared because of our, all of our studies. I mean, this is, as you can tell, a heavily studied project. We've got all kinds of data, not in, not only about the monitoring data that we're catching on, on the wildlife side of things, but the whole seafloor has been characterized in this area so we can know exactly where to place the rocks. So at, the, at this point in the process, um, when the tribal nation came forward, we had already done um, side scan sonar and bathymetry data. We had imaging, 3D imaging of the seafloor. So we knew where everything, we had a good you know, characterization. So we shared that data with them. They looked at the design of the project and said, you know, there's a couple of areas we think have a probability um, that could be harboring some resources. And so during our consultation process in 2000, our licensing process um, in 2018, um, a representative from the tribe um, dove in the location, the design locations where the polygons were to be placed. This is before they were put in, of course. Okay, when you say uh, the polygons on the ground, what you're talking about on the seafloor, these are designated right. areas where the rock is going to go. And Precisely. this guy went out there and checked it out, and, and okay, keep going. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the dive team went down there, and when they were doing the studies, they concluded that there was um, a tribal, I think it was described as a non-tangible tribal cultural resource that, that was discovered or identified um, in their records. And so they asked us to please avoid this area. And so as a result of that discussion, we eliminated that polygon 
from our project and we added other contingency areas elsewhere on the project. Um, and what that did was it, it led to a resolution where the tribes had been in, involved in the process, they were participating, they had a voice, um, we were all at the table with them. Um, state lands, I think, handled the consultation extremely well um, and, and, and ended up you know, avoiding an area um, and then there was some other mitigation that was written into the environmental impact report, the final draft, where um, we offered also they were provided an opportunity to dive before the project and at the end of the project as well to evaluate if there's any impacts. And then also um, we're going to end up writing a paper. So we're supposed to write a scientific paper on it as well. Wow. Uh, yes. Round of applause, please, for the, the state lands folks, for SoCal Edison, and for the tribal representatives and the designers and engineers behind the reef, because this is how government process is supposed to work. Uh, we all, you know, we hear too many negative things about uh, about our state agency and federal agency people who work on these very uh, difficult problems, but this is how it's supposed to work. I mean, I'm just really so pleased to hear that you got the Native American community representatives in the water to actually look at this thing. Uh, consultation is common in um, in cultural resources and at the federal and the state level, uh, but listening is not common. <laughs> they'll always talk to you, but they'll tell you, hey, we don't think there's anything there. And, and getting the project, uh, SoCal Edison and the state folks to, to, to really listen to those concerns and to adjust you're still meeting your mitigation goals, but you're doing it in a way that is uh, respectful of these indigenous rights. And uh, it sounds like I'm glad you're writing a paper about that. People need to know more about how these issues can be successfully addressed. So I'm, I'll give you a round of applause on that one. That was it was a great process. And I, I appreciate you recognizing the agency. It's a relatively new piece of legislation. And. I think it was new for everybody involved, which is why, you know, we felt like the paper was a good way to kind of um, put it out there that, you know, as an example of how, how the tribes can be part of the process, which is what's so important. Well, when, when it's completed, uh, be sure to send it to us and we'll be sure to share it on Coastal News today. We will. And uh, maybe we'll even have you or the author, uh, whoever makes the most sense on uh, Jenny, to talk about it. That sounds very interesting. I'd love to do that. I'd uh, love to Great. do that interview, Tyler. Um, let's talk a little bit, go back just a bit here about the plant itself. So that the, the plant is no longer producing uh, power for sale. Um, but these things are not just turned off quickly because of the, of, we, are we in decommissioning now at the uh, San Onofre, San, at Songs at the San Onofre Nuclear uh, Generating Station? Is that what, is that what it's called? Are, are you in decommissioning? What, what's the status? It is in decommissioning and they're going through the permitting process and any more than that I can't really I'm not okay. <laughs> and decommissioning means so and the thing I, I took notice of is when you were talking about the in, intake situation how much right. water was that at the present time less than two percent of the volume that was needed Correct. to cool the plant during operation is being pulled through the plant because the plant still needs to be cooled the fuel rods right. are still in place and and right. it, even though it's not producing power for sale it's not uh, it, these things aren't like light switches so right. um, it is as as you look down the road Jenny at your career 
with SoCal Edison and this project. What do you see ahead of you over the next five or 10 years? Is this about the end of the line for this project? Do you feel like there's more to work through? Can you t take us uh, take a take a look down the down the timeline a little bit and tell us what you're saying? Sure. Well, a couple of things that um, will help the description of that. So we're not yet done with construction, first of all. So we did get 119 acres built this year, but we'll be coming back next year to finish the construction of the remediation degree. So we've got another um, 80 or so acres to go. And then once we've done with really the fun part of the project, which is the, the, the construction of it, um, really we want to get out of there because the, the construction really kind of does have, a, you know, some disturbance to the ocean as we're out there. So once we're done, um, the following year in 2021, the scientists will be out on um, the remediation reef and they'll be collecting data on the remediation reef. Now, one of the things, there's a couple of things that came out of the permitting with this expansion project. Um, number one, the 28 years, uh, 28 tons per year of fish um, that was changed to be a cumulative measurement, meaning instead of saying if you don't have 28 tons of fish, you don't get any credit at all. That was changed to be if you have 28 tons, if you have 17 tons that year, it's going to count towards the overall end goal, which is now 896 tons of fish. Hmm. Now, let me kind of back up a little bit yeah, on that. Do that. What was important here? <laughs> it was a jump. What's important here is we define the operating life in this permit. The Coastal Commission defined the operating life of the power plant. So they said, okay, you started this year, you ended this year, you had 32 years of operation. When we did that, the um, reef is now going to be measured against the operating life, the mitigation compliance period for the reef is going to be measured against the operating life of the plant, therefore the 32 years. Gotcha. And so that was really important. That was a keystone part of it for us and Coastal Commission because if we did not build the expansion and if we did not change the way we were counting the fish from annual to cumulative, we would be 100 years later still trying to meet requirements. Right. And so, it doesn't, that's, you know, I think that's a really important, thank you for bringing that up and walking the audience through that. Um, because I think, again, uh, what we're talking about here is the inside uh, analysis, the insider discussions that go on behind these projects in the regulatory arena. And you do have to do stuff like this. You say, you know what, the plant operated for how long? What is the impact of this plant and the discharge and the, and on the environment? You have to come up with something like the, the plant life was 32 years. Um, it's, it, we think it's having a detrimental effect of 28 tons per year. So you get to multiply that together, right? 28 times 32 years and come up with the tons of fish that were negatively impacted, uh, what was 898 tons. But then it gets into the thing that you explained, which is, look, you could say every year has to hit 28, and if it doesn't, you don't get credit for that. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. I like this, the shift in the new permit to say, look, the cumulative total of net uh, biomass, fish biomass, has got to be hit 898 tons, but we're gonna, it's going to fluctuate year to year. That seems more sensible to me and more realistic, too. Um, was that hard to, was it hard to get that 
adopted or was that something that the agency understood to be a reasonable way to look at it? Um, it was calm. It was a complex process. Um, we have a good relationship with the scientists that, um, you know, collect the information in the scientific advisory panel. We have a good relationship with them. We have a good relationship with the Coastal Commission. Um, but we did have to be willing to do the expansion project. So had we not um, built the additional acreage, this option would not, this adjustment wouldn't be, wouldn't be uh, right. available to us. A little so give and a little take. Combination, right. And, and the same thing for the acres of kelp that we have to have 150 acres of kelp each year um, for 32 years. So we have 4,800 acres of kelp we have to achieve in 896 tons of fish. So that's our requirements. Um, and then we also, you know, the, remember the re relative requirements I was telling you about how we're compared to the other two reefs. Yeah. We have to be doing that for 32 years as well. So there's a very long monitoring period for this project. Now, my role is going to be very much um, dialing back from the construction piece. It's going to be really overseeing the relationship, um, the budget, making sure we're in attainment, continuing to evaluate the annual Good. report as they come out, that type of work. Great. <laughs> well, Jenny McGee, rest I have a, I have a final yeah. thought. Go ahead. You can go ahead sign. Go well, ahead. you know, I've, I'm going to echo, I think, what Peter said, but you know, I just, I'm really proud of uh, this outcome. I think that it's, you know, Obviously, SoCal Edison Power Company, we're dealing with a nuclear power plant, folks. Uh, we're dealing with an environmental impact right on the beach to an ecosystem. And we're in California where people, you know, the political volatility of all of this. And, and, and as Jenny, you spoke of, we have a, um, a, you know, a native culture stepping in and having a concern about this mitigation project. So there's just so much going on here over the life of and and our cultures change. You know, when this plant was built, our our attitudes toward nuclear power were different and toward coastal development were different and it's just a fascinating case study in the the like helix twist over time of coastal culture in regulation in government uh you know new new laws coming on the books and how does that get and also in the negotiation between uh southern california edison and government regulators making it feasible um there was a give and a take as as you said and um this is the way it is supposed to work i think so too well, ladies and gentlemen, Jenny McGee, restoration ecologist and project manager for Southern California Edison Power Company, overseeing the mitigation reef, the uh, Wheeler North mitigation reef for the San Onofre Nuclear Power Generating Station. Uh, Jenny, <laughs> I love all of that. What are your final thoughts on this topic? Uh, well, you know, I have to say I've been really fortunate to be um, playing such a, a role in this project. It's certainly uh, a project of a lifetime. And we just have a really great representation at Edison um, bringing forward safety on a daily basis. Um, you know, that's just been such an important part of the construction piece of the job. Um, and if it wasn't for that, you know, we just really wouldn't have such a such a important piece of, the, of work to be proud of. So 
um, there's that. And then, you know, we really have, of course, wonderful partners in this as well. And so um, I'm the voices talking to you today, but there's a lot of people behind scenes that are doing amazing work and brilliant minds that have gone into this. And um, it's just been a pleasure to work for the company and represent Edison on this, um, you know, milestone, milestone job. Yeah. Yeah. And well, thank you so much for your interest. I really appreciate talking to you guys today. This well, fun. thank you very much for being on the American Shoreline podcast. And I'll just say on behalf of listeners around the country, we're counting on people like you to do the great jobs that you do. This is important that you guys get it right. And it sounds like it's in very good hands. Ladies and gentlemen, Jenny McGee from Southern California Edison, uh, project manager on the mitigation reef for San Onofre. Thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you, guys. The beaches he sailed to build their hotels. My father's and mine were sure.